0: welcome to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Simon Brown, a co-host of the podcast and PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley, and I had the pleasure of speaking with Anthony Grafton, the Henry Putnam Professor of History and the Humanities at Princeton University. We talked about his new book, Inky Fingers, The Making of Books in Early Modern Europe, out this year from Harvard University Press. The book takes the reader through historical settings and case studies to explore the laborious, collaborative, and sometimes poorly compensated work of humanist scholarship between the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. We discussed the division of labor in the printing house, the divination in the corrector's work, and intellectual property in a world of commonplaces. In your first chapter on the printing house and running through many of your case studies, you show how humanist scholarship in the early modern period was laborious and more so than we might expect, such that this was not a world of leisurely reflection, but something that we would recognize as work. So so can you talk about some of the characteristics of early modern humanist scholarship that you see as laborious?
1: Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, It's a great question. So the labor of scholarship is a side of it that on the whole had not been much emphasized in in, in modern scholarship on the history of knowledge or the history of philology until relatively recently. Uh, there has always been a tendency to make a hero of the virtuoso scholar whose insight is often characterized as divinatory. The scholar who can look at a meaningless jumble of letters and say that should say Constantinopolitanus and be right and uh, and there there's a a kind of heroic or even hagiographic history of scholarship that emphasizes that kind of scholarly transformation scene where the scholar is like a magus, waves the wand and the text or the historical question is suddenly transformed. That certainly happened. And there certainly have been great conjecturally menders of texts, but I was—I learned a great deal. I always have learned. Uh, there's a, a great line in the Talmud uh, I learned much from my teachers, more from my colleagues, and most from my students. And so I've I learned enormously from my teachers, especially Arnaldo Momigliano, who was really the greatest historian of scholarship that we've had. But I learned even more, perhaps, from a group of scholars I think of as colleagues. They're mostly five to 10 years younger than me. Uh, in especially in Germany and in America. In Germany, Martin Mulzo, Helmut Zedlmayr, uh, uh and in America, Anne Blair, who actually did her PhD with me and is of that, that same kind of cohort. There are others as well. And since the 90s they've been emphasizing in a really fruitful and productive way the importance of compilation as a feature of early modern scholarship so the importance of the notebook as the uh, as the physical embodiment of the treasure of a learned person as thousands of pages of carefully transcribed texts the use of uh, commonplaces, loci comunes, as an organizing tool and the way in which that tool enabled scholars to gain control over enormous fields. And I was fascinated by their material, I learned an enormous amount from them, but I always myself kept asking the question, how does this intersect with intellectual history? How does this intersect with the history of knowledge making uh, in more than just saying, here is the routine, the way that you made your own apparatus or reference books. And over time, starting after 2000, really, I found myself more and more seeing studies I was doing as studies in the productive character of compilation. The studies in the way notebooks were not simply passive receptacles for material, but um, tools of knowledge, which collected material in ways that inflected it and imposed interpretations on it. And I did a few case studies which really convinced me that a notebook could be a much more powerful tool for squeezing new ideas out of old information than I'd ever realized. So one of these case studies was that of Polydor Virgil, the author of a great compilation on the inventors of things. And the first three books of this are the best known, which are mostly on the invention of um, secular things like writing and paper and printing. Uh, and they're quite fascinating. But books four through eight, which he published uh, later than the first three, just as the Reformation was breaking out, are about the invention of features of Catholic of Catholic Christianity. It's like a history of Christianity in a hundred objects and practices. And he didn't do any particularly original research. There isn't a sort of antiquarian inquiry into old churches that he knew or old manuscripts of the liturgy. He used pretty standard sources, but he rifled them systematically. And as he did, arguments fell into place. And one of them was the argument, which I emphasize in the book, that Christianity really begins as a Jewish sect. And what I argue is that he's the... One of the first people, maybe the first, to put this is not a totally new idea. Of course, everybody knew in some way that Christianity came out of a Jewish uh, matrix, but this puts some flesh and bones on that idea. It gives a sense of which usages, from liturgy and vestments to uh, the actual form of churches, could perhaps have been derived from Jewish usage. And the book is itself. reprinted over and over and over again in multiple forms. It's endlessly recycled and used. And I was able to show that, for example, the first Protestant church history, the so-called Magdeburg Centuries, which was put together a, a few decades after Polydor Virgil, and by the same method, though, in this case, collaborative compilation of notebooks, that Polydor's information and also his thesis about the Jewish origins of Christianity were recycled into that later text, which itself was very influential, and into into other texts. So I did a number of studies of that kind, which really impressed me with the way in which this historiography of knowledge-making as a set of techniques could actually help us understand some of the intellectual history of knowledge making. At the same time, uh, as Bob Darton's colleague at Princeton, uh, as somebody who learned over the years reading Donald McKenzie and other pioneers of analytical bibliography, uh, and learned from them that you can set yourself into the printing house and see how books are made, I was very interested to find out what that experience did to those who underwent it and what connections there were, if any, between the experience of preparing texts for print in a printing house and what has always been studied as the history of textual criticism, something done by an individual scholar sitting in a study looking at a piece of paper. And one product of that interest was a book on the history of correctors. And that first chapter really summarizes some of the material for that. But another was a real sense that ideas about what it meant to be a scholar actually changed when scholars had to prepare a whole text for print. Just correcting one piece at a time is one kind of experience, and that is pretty much what a scholar does in a room, but correcting a whole text so that every sentence in it makes a kind of sense, that's a different kind of enterprise, and it's something you have to do faster, you can't go looking for new resources to do it. It's the kind of thing that Erasmus, for example, did sitting in a printing house the printing house of Froben in Basel. And I was able to show in another chapter of the book that there, there's a kind of reverse effect. Erasmus had always believed in the virtues of careful compl- collation of manuscripts, careful scholarly work. But in the middle of the second decade of the 16th century, when he found himself in Froben's house with the very complicated and difficult letters of St. Jerome to edit and a full edition of, Je- of Jerome's works to supervise, he couldn't wait and do that anymore. He had to def- Divine. He didn't like divining at first, but he found that it was, in, it, it was essential. So divination turns out in its origins in uh, early modern produ- scholarly production, not to be the lordly mega scholar sitting in his study saying, I can call this text back. It's the harried scholar with inky fingers who has a proof sheet in front of him and says, this sentence doesn't make sense. What am I going to do? Okay, here's what we're going to do. So in, in each case, the relation between work and scholarship is one that earlier scholars hadn't really called attention to in quite the same way, though I was certainly building on their work in every way. And it seemed to me that these stories, in a way, coalesced as a single story that seeing scholarship at work not only let one see the conditions of production in a different way, but understood what was, to understand what was produced in a different way.
0: Right, specifically, I, I was interested in that anecdote that you mentioned about Erasmus and uh, divination and the, the kind of divination analogy, because you also talked about the extent to which divination became, a, um, became more positive as an analogy. In other words, it at one point was criticized uh, as the a, a way to describe scholarly work because it was looked on with suspicion. But over time, people like Erasmus began to kind of embrace divination as a a, a kind of an honorable description of the kind of work they're doing. So can you talk a little bit about uh, why divination becomes a positive description of this kind of laborious, inky work that you're talking about?
1: Well, I think it becomes positive Because partly because there's simply no alternative. That is, once you have a text set up in type, you can only uh, improve it at the edges. And improving at the edges means divination. It means looking at the proof sheet and thinking, what can I do about this? Because it has to be done in the next half hour so they can then reset the type and pull a thousand copies of it. Uh, But there's a little bit more to it than that. I think that... It took the conditions of printing for scholars to accept how corrupt most manuscripts really are. That if you, as you know, if you copy a normal manuscript, there's always stuff in it, unless it's a, a remarkable professional scribal copy. There are always things you don't understand. There are strange grammatical constructions. There's missing punctuation. Uh, it's, it's just inevitable. And I think that the idea that you could work simply by copying manuscripts and collating dissolved when you realized that you had to produce a text that people could actually read and make sense of. And you realized that people all over Europe were going to be reading this text that you're responsible for. If you published with Froben, he had all kinds of deals. He swapped copies with other publishers. He filled barrels with copies and sent them to Paris where the Basel printers had their own bookstore. Like the old, uh, I guess it's now gone, the lamented University Press books in Berkeley. Uh, There was was a bookstore called the the Shield of Basel in Paris, which sold the, the production of the great Basel printers. And uh, so all of that pressure came down on you and the only answer was divination. So divination, which in the 15th century had been looked down on, often connected with the illegal work of diviners who were uh, real necromancers who used techniques of divination to uh, predict the future by dropping bits of hot lead into water and reading the patterns they made or, uh, or by or uh, uh, looking at the shapes of clouds. There's a million forms of divination. Um, those, can, those connections really drop away, and div, textual divination becomes, in a sense, the quintessence of, of philological scholarship at its best. And I think it's only after that that scholars realize that, in a way, uh, all the divination means is that you're simultaneously applying many different kinds of knowledge, lexical, grammatical, stylistic, knowledge of the usage of an author, knowledge of the historical context, knowledge of the development of the language, knowledge of meter, if it's verse, all of those things are being focused down on a single passage. And that's what enables you to divine the answer. There's nothing miraculous about it. It's a highly interdisciplinary and remarkably erudite process. But I don't think they could see that until they decided that divination was not just necessary, but valuable.
0: Right. And it, and as you described, that process takes place through the experience of the printing house. And so I wanted to ask also kind of about the connection between the laborious character of a lot of this humanist scholarship that you describe and the, the commercial side of it and the commercial dependence of a printer and a printing press on consumers Um, so because when we think about labor we also think about it as the thing you do to make an income and i wonder to what extent the dependence on a kind of a market for readers and a dependence on publishers as for income for for scholars to what extent that kind of accentuated the laborious character of humanist scholarship such that you could say it was more laborious than uh, a a piece of scholarship that was produced, uh, say, for a court patron or uh, for a different kind of audience. Um, Was it the commercial dependence on a consumer audience that kind of hastened or exacerbated this association with labor on the part of humanists?
1: Very much so, and in two ways. In the first place, it was in order to serve the Uh, needs and to please consumers that printers began to prepare their texts for print. The earliest printed texts are often barely edited, but by the end of the 15th century, the printers are paying scholars to divide texts into chapters, to give chapters titles to provide tables of contents, to draw up indexes once the once a, a text has been printed, and all of that is obviously because these were aids that made a one edition much more attractive than another. But all of them also took a considerable amount of labor, uh, and. Uh, one of the things I learned in, in working on the correctors is that in the early years of print, printers really liked to get a member of a mendicant order to do correcting because they couldn't pay him. <laughs> and so instead, they would give the order a copy of the finished book, uh. and so uh, which was obviously much cheaper for them than having to pay out actual cash. On the other hand, they also could advertise all the labor that had gone into the book. And so frequently in colophons and on title pages, they actually emphasize the work that has gone into making this product Mm. uh, in a way that you would never do for a court patron. So Erasmus did two editions of Seneca with Froben, and the first um, which isn't so emphatic about textual um, uh, textual conjectures as the second says in the blurb. And the blurb is actually in the middle of the title page inside a woodcut border. Um, Erasmus has amended these texts and as he has amended them, they will amend your conduct and your character, <clears throat> which is a you know wonderful kind of an ad. In the yeah. second edition, he actually says, "This is already, you know, this is Seneca, which Erasmus has really fixed up by sagacious conjectural criticism." So, in that sense, it's Erasmus's intellectual labor which constitutes a decisive part of the value
0: of the edition. Yeah, that's interesting because um, you describe how the correctors themselves were in some cases they, in some cases, they became less reputable precisely because they were kind of constantly associating with and working alongside the mechanical laborers of the publishing house. And in some cases, they made less money than the mechanical laborers. Um, And and this, to some extent, would detract from their scholarly reputation. But you also, as you just said, there are times in which someone like Erasmus might emphasize the scholarly labor that goes into work. So was there ever a, a time when, or was it, did you encounter cases in which people did emphasize the mechanical nature of their work, that that an association with mechanical knowledge was actually to the benefit or to the reputation of scholars? I can think of that happening well, in the natural sciences, for instance, uh, that happened in the in in humanistic scholarship.
1: Absolutely, um, and there there's a there is a problem there because. A scholar who saw himself as an aristocrat didn't want to, uh, you know, had a hard time admitting that he was doing the work of an inky handed poor devil of letters. So Joseph Scaliger supervised the production of the great corpus of inscriptions in Greek and Latin, it was edited by a friend of his, Janus Grutter, but it's really Scaliger who kicks him into work and who makes possible the immense international collaboration that poured inscriptions in and made this corpus comprehensive. Now Scaliger couldn't get Grutter to do indexes, so he indexed it himself. And he complains endlessly that he's doing something fit for printers workmen, and he's really annoyed. But in fact, if you look at his indexes, they're incredibly smart. He's really seeing the value of inscriptions for writing a different kind of ancient history not a narrative of events or rulers or battles, but a study of private life, of uh, household religion, of the roles of slaves and freedmen, uh, of relations between husbands and wives. And so the way he's indexing is immensely intelligent and really represents a kind of transformation in the understanding of how you write ancient history. Mm. And of course, it's still true today that the big difference between professional ancient historians and those of us who are interested in ancient history is that the great ancient historians are a a tiny bit of the evidence that they concern themselves with. You know, their stories are built by reading vast quantities of material evidence in the form of inscriptions and archaeological finds, often very much against the grain. And Scaliger really sees this most clearly as he's doing this big job of indexing, which he claims to be furious <laughs> about. So I, I think that there is a problem about that. On the other hand, authors did like to make clear that they were very proficient proofreaders and they, they like to throw the terminology around a little bit. Mm. And when possible, authors like to be in the printing house when the proofs were read so that they had some control over decisions.
0: Right, right, and and I you can definitely kind of read through those descriptions the extent to which uh, these kind of kind of this kind of labor that is both mechanical but also scholarly of correcting of proofing etc. and indexing um, is is something that that these scholars would prize and kind of celebrate about their own work. Um, I, so I wanted to talk about also Absolute. the the other kind of side of the the. What makes humanistic scholarship laborious that you mentioned at the beginning, which is this kind of common practice of commonplace of both commonplacing on the one hand, and the kind of uh, compilation and collection in print that it that it often feeds or it often informs. Um, I think this is interesting in part because you know when we today think about intellectual labor as a category, we we think about it inextricably from intellectual property, uh, the thing that the intellectual labor mm. produces and the, the thing that you can then use to make money. But throughout the book, you describe in, in almost every case the extent to which it's through the acts of compilation of the kind uh Polydor Virgil did that you described that new scholarship is produced and new ideas are produced. Um, so I wanted to, to ask kind of about that specifically um, was... It was, was there to what extent, I guess, was intellectual culture seen as less proprietary in the, sen- in the sense that we understand it now, and kind of did that change substantially over the period that you talked about? Um, there's a really fantastic quote you give from Pastorius's commonplace book, precisely about the kind of frequency with which you steal claims from other authors, and that's in the early 18th century. So to what extent did this common practice of compilation and commonplacing, uh, to what extent was that seen as a challenge to, to intellectual property at all, and did it change over the period you talked about?
1: Yeah, another great question. And I think, again, there was real ambivalence. That is, on the one hand, Obviously, if you are taking someone else's commonplacing and re-commonplacing it, then it shows real chutzpah to claim that as your own intellectual property, um, particularly if you're not inflecting it in a very particular way. Uh, And people do that, and other people object to it. Scaliger and some of his uh, copies of contemporary books will object that the author is merely recompiling what he's found in another compilation. But at the same time, once you have put your own Uh, twist on the material, then you want credit if somebody else uses it. And once again, it's possible to see uh, real uh, people really being irked when their, uh, their particular way of putting the material together is not appreciated by readers. So, so there's ambivalence, uh, and and of course in the 18th century there's great ambivalence too. The and my Pastorius, this wonderful German who who goes to uh, goes to America on what a German friend of mine calls the German Mayflower, uh, this late in late 17th century ship. Um, he, you know, he is in on the one hand deeply steeped in all of the humanist discussions of originality and emulation and allusion and on the other hand he's reading the new periodicals from london and he's fascinated by the wars that go on there among Swift and Pope and other writers, which are very much about what's originality, what's plagiarism, what is, uh, you know, what is, you know, just absolute stupidity, which, you know, Pope pillories in his very Aurum dunciad uh and so uh, in pastorius the uh, the discussion really doubles and triples back on itself in a very intricate and wonderful way in which the tatler and pliny are are talking to one another and and both of them are addressing this um i do think that there there's more sense of literary property earlier on than Uh, Some historians of it, Mark Rose, for example, in his excellent book on it, have given credit And because it depends on where you look. If you look in the sophisticated humanistic Latin literature, there are clear senses of literary property that may not have been so evident in English vernacular literature.
0: Right, and I, I mean, even within the quote from Pastorius's beehive collection that you, that you cite, um, it, the, the interesting kind of tension between the commonality with which people take these commonplaces and phrases, and yet also the recognition of them as work is really evident. So I just want to read it very quickly, he says. And those, Senecia says, it's a more unpardonable theft to steal the labors of dead men than their garments. Yet the wisest of men concludes, there is no new thing under the sun and another that nothing can be said but what has been said already. And I just found that so interesting precisely because he's talking about the necessity of, of theft, while at the same time very much describing it as the product of the labors of dead men.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not just that you're filching sort of coins out of their purse. You're you're filching coins for which they worked, and you know, and he's very much a generation ahead of someone like Benjamin Franklin, <clears throat> with that sense that virtuous labor is how you build a life as a writer and scholar.
0: Right, right, and so and just to kind of stay with Pastorius a little bit, um, because I think he gives also another interesting example of how. Um, of how this work of compilation can lead to really productive outcomes. You talk about how it led to productive um, contributions to uh, scholarship of what we now might think of as early comparative religion uh, and early religious history, but you also also talk about how his use of compilation could lead to kind of a critical stance um, and the extent to which uh, through uh, uh, the act of compilation in his works and in, in the works of some of his Germanic contemporaries, um, you see a kind of uh, eclecticism, as you describe it, in which many ideas are placed before you. Many ideas are held together and you associate that kind of eclecticism with the a critical attitude that we might think of and associate with the Enlightenment in the 18th century. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about uh, kind of what that eclecticism might look like in pastorius but in other writers and and why we might associate that with a critical stance in the 18th century?
1: Well, I think that this is very much part of a, a big uh, a, a, a huge, world of, of early reform, of early Enlightenment research. And um, the, the person who I most associate with this is Martin Mulzo, who has really done this magnificent, now the, the final version, I think is two volumes and 1,200 pages, study of um, how, um, as he puts it, Enlightenment comes out of the literary underground Of these poor and often very eclectic and very kind of bothered and bewildered scholars who run into trouble with censors and end up in prison, but who are still using their learning, however limited it is, to raise questions which will turn out in much more sophisticated form to be the questions of the philosopher and of the uh, high or the radical Hobaki and enlightenment. Uh, what And what fascinates me, it, it reminds me a little bit uh, in in a funny way of of what we often see uh, today in America, which is people using random bits of often wrong information from Facebook to uh, be the basis of a critique of government policy or of regulation about, say, wearing masks, not to mention a, a sore point now. Uh, and what what we see in these enlighteners is that the information they're using is often not good. It's often old, it's often uh, not up to date. So when Pastorius argues that um, Black people are no different from any other people. Their uh, their skin color is the result of environmental influence and nothing else. Uh, he gets that idea from a mid-17th century compiler, Georg Horn of the University of Leiden. Uh, It's not up-to-date natural philosophy, but he uses it in a highly uh, constructive way. And uh, as we used to say in the 60s, it's probably not an accident that he also drafts the first protest against slavery to be committed to writing in the English-speaking colonies, the Germantown Petition uh, against slaveholding by Quakers. So in, in that sense... Uh, I think if you have a basically kind of curious and critical attitude, eclecticism becomes a way in which you pull things out of texts and they give you leverage for calling conventional wisdom into question. Uh, And uh, this is, I think, a, a trait of humanism that goes right back to the beginning. I think of Christine de Pizan and the book of the City of Women, Uh, where she confronts the argument, which is, of course, a central one to Greek philosophy, that there is a hierarchy of human intellect in which males are above females. And you know, and this is, and she knows that this is something Aristotle believes and she actually values Aristotelian political philosophy and practices it herself. She knows that Cicero believes this. Uh, and then she says, but look at what women did. look at Ceres and the cultivation of, uh, of grain. Look at uh, look at other um, figures that we would call mythical and their great accomplishments. And, you know, she's using this late medieval, highly allegorical uh, vision of myth as human history, which has been transfigured in a very critical way to criticize, you know, a fundamental social hierarchy. It's incredibly ingenious.
0: Right. And so one of the terms that comes up and you were describing a contemporary of Pistorius um, who himself had critiqued like Pastorius had also done, like the, the school learning from which they them, they had emerged, um, one of the terms they use is pedantry. Uh, I think it was a, a speech on pedantry. And, right. And um, I was interested in this term in part because of that usage, but also, I guess, somewhat from my own research, uh, that pedantry so often, that accusation so often does seem to come with associations of uh, kind of a workman-like that that pedant a pedant is somebody who is kind of hunched over physically changed from the work of scholarship that they do kind of marked uh by the by that kind of work so i was just wondering if you could if you could um uh opine on on this accusation of pedantry here used is a critical term to describe kind of outmoded knowledge but um I wonder if if you do see an association between the accusation of pedantry with the kind of laborious quality of the work that built up what a critic could then look on as useless and uh, outmoded knowledge.
1: Certainly. And this is a, a line of criticism that runs in, especially in the German world, from the late 16th century on, there are just endless satires of the pedantry of scholars. Uh, There's the proverb, die geletten, die verketten, the the learned or the crazy. Um, There is, uh, you know, that there's an enormous German literature of of satire of scholars. It's kind of the early modern counterpart to the modern university novel. Uh, And of course it's written by scholars so in that sense, uh, you know, it is people who know the world they're making fun of very intimately. Uh, and it's certainly true that the 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 pedant becomes more and more a figure of fun. Uh, and, you know, the greatest single mocker of pedants is probably um, Edward Gibbon, who ransacks their work to write his own Decline and Fall, and who at times will thank them uh, it's a very moving footnote when um, the work of Lenin de Tiemont, the uh, French scholar who had compiled enormous amounts of information on the late Roman Empire and on the uh, origins of Christianity, when his, his works run out and Gibbon sort of you know, wishes a fond farewell to this um, not very intelligent, but tremendously honest and hardworking guide. But on the whole, Gibbon is very mocking of pedantic antiquaries who don't think and just compile. Hmm. And in that that sense, you know, he is himself, uh, you know, his own footnotes to him would not be a model of pedantry, but precisely a model of adroit and witty
0: use of learning right and that dynamic you describe just now between uh gibbon and his predecessors who he kind of uh, he still critiques uh is a dynamic that you also describe uh in your concluding chapter on spinoza and in your discussion of spinoza you talk about how while well, his work on biblical authorship uh and the history of the books of the bible was um kind of justifiably seen as an important and uh, to some extent, radical uh, intervention. What you focus on is the extent to which he was very much dependent and very much in conversation with pretty mainstream scholarship uh, in the 17th century. Um, so I, I was wondering about the case with Spinoza that it, since this is where we've been thinking a lot about how this kind of scholarship is laborious uh, it is uh, workmanlike at times. It, if Spinoza, if his intervention was so informed by mainstream scholarship, is, is the, what's radical about the intervention that it's a kind of scholarly profanation of a sacred text, that it's bringing the kind of very dirty, profane labor of the, of the corrector or of the printing house in conversation with a sacred scripture? Or is there something else that could legitimately make it um, seen as a a real enlightenment intervention uh, in the way that it's usually talked about?
1: I think it is an enlightenment intervention uh, in the same way that say, some of the enlightenment writing about Islam, which Alex Bevilacqua has recently shown rests on the work of 17th century scholars was uh, and that the the striking thing for me in Spinoza is that his case um, is a very paradoxical one. He does compile, and I point out some of the ways in which his work rests on compiled material. Uh, Not done as systematically as someone like Pistorius or, or Erasmus, but certainly he is going through multiple sources, he is pulling things together, making a kind of mosaic story in the way a scholar would. What is so striking about Spinoza is, first of all, the thing that Leibniz notices when he reads the book for the first time, which is that Spinoza's doing this without knowing how a professional scholar would collect this kind of information. And a professional scholar would say, yeah, Bible's an ancient text, so it must have been redacted. That's what happens. That's how texts keep going. And Spinoza, not knowing that this is a normal feature, not knowing that Homer was redacted as well as the Bible being redacted, uh, is really a little bit like the, you know, like the Claude Rains character in Casablanca. There's gambling going on here. I'm shocked. Uh, you know, he, you know he, he is shocked by something that someone who was up to date in scholarship would have known what to do, would have taken a, a, as much less significant. And I think that a problem in much of what's written about Spinoza, and I am no historian of philosophy and I greatly appreciate what's been written on Spinoza qua philosopher, is that people very reasonably don't come to Spinoza from the humanistic literature of the 17th century century. And so they don't know that a fairly sophisticated discussion of uh, ways in which the Bible could have been formed and reformed was part of that literature before he wrote and before Hobbes wrote. And they don't know the relation of what he or Hobbes is saying to that earlier literature. Right. So in that case, it's a compilation that's done pretty badly, has tremendously radical effects. <laughs>
0: right and that is a a, an interesting dynamic that seems to reappear again and again throughout your book um and we've 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 gone through the scope of of your chapters and so on the note i'd like to end on is to ask about what you are working on now and any projects that you have now on the horizon
1: Oh, thank you. that's a question that makes me very happy because I'm actually working on a collaborative COVID project. And uh-huh. um, it's not a COVID project in the sense that it's about COVID, but I'm working on a short book. I hope it will be uh, on excavations in, uh, in, in in by antiquarians and by people hunting relics around fifteen hundred. I'm working on this with a colleague, Maran Elizabeth Schwab, uh, who is a, a young Latinist at the University of Bonn. Uh, who wrote a wonderful dissertation on antiquarianism in Renaissance Rome. And uh, she and I had been talking for a year or two about one particular episode, the rediscovery of the titulus, the placard from the true cross, which says Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews in Hebrew, Latin and Greek, and is rediscovered in the Roman Church of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem in 1492. Of course, it's not the true cross. It's a medieval uh, replica, but uh, it's a a discovery that excites people, and we went through the uh, texts that describe it and learned some things about it, and then we realized that people at the time actually compare this rediscovery with the rediscovery of the beautifully preserved body of a Roman woman found in the Appian Way in 1485. And then we began to compare with other rediscovery stories. And uh, just in the course of the summer, thanks to the materials that are available in digital sites like DigiVatLib, the Digital Vatican Library, uh, and to notes we had both taken on earlier research trips and to Uh, digital materials and our library's very helpful digitization of sources before the stacks were open, we've been able to draft the core of a book which really is about excavation. And it's about the techniques of excavation. It's about this, again, what turns out to be a very interdisciplinary enterprise. It's quite fascinating to see the way that artisans and others are called in to advise so the Roman girl uh, is covered with an ointment, which they think must be what's preserved the body. So they scrape some of this off and call an alchemist to analyze it. And the alchemist actually does an analysis. And uh, it, so in one case, it's an, it's, the, uh, it's an alchemist. In another case, which concerns the, tunic, the seamless uh, tunic or robe of Jesus, which is in Trier, Again, it's not really the seamless tunic of Jesus. Um, that's pulled out and inspected in 1512. And one of the people who inspects it talks to weavers about how, you how it might have been possible to weave this very distinctive cloth. And so once again, what we see is a very uh, an interdisciplinary kind of pursuit. but in this case, it's an interdisciplinarity that's carried by conversation that involves, uh, as printing did, people of different social orders, but in a rather different way. And uh, what we hope to do in the end is to um, is to familiarize a couple of stories that are very famous. One of them is the story of the discovery of the Laocoon in Rome early in the 16th century. Another is the story of the discovery of Nero's golden house. And both of these are usually told as individual stories as if they are highly distinctive. And of course, the antiquities in question are very distinctive. But in fact, we can show that the kind of work that people did in those cases is the kind of work you did when you did an excavation that there, there were a kind of a set of norms and a set of practices. And it's been great fun to do this. We have some wonderful episodes that nobody's put together before. Uh, we get to work in dialogue with some, you know, superb secondary literature by people like Leonard Barkin and Peter Miller Uh, So it's just been a joy to do this. I'm a serial collaborator and doing this this way means that I'll do work late at night and send it off. And then when I wake up the next morning, there are comments and revisions from my collaborator who's on German time.
0: Right. And I was just thinking that the collaborative nature of the subject you're studying and the collaborative nature of your own project seem very fitting with the uh, kind of laborious world of humanist scholarship that, uh, that you describe in the book. So it sounds both fitting and also like a f- absolutely fascinating project. So I'm very excited to read more.
1: And, uh, and I'm hoping that we can get it done. I'm hoping that the COVID lifts soon, but that we get it done
0: sooner. Great. Well, Professor Anthony Grafton, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your book.
1: Thank you so much, Simon. It's been a pleasure.